heard the Republican rhetoric and you've heard the British backlash on Twitter. On this week's business podcast, we discuss the economics of healthcare. Just why are Americans so opposed to adopting a system of socialised medicine? Does the NHS make economic sense? And will the squeeze on public finances affect our most cherished of services? Plus, from healthcare to recovery, we hear from our correspondents in France and Japan about the end of those countries' recessions. What lessons can we learn from their experience here in Britain? I'm Edith Chakraborty, and this is The Business from The Guardian. Well, the show is called The Business, but this week I'm joined by two erudite economists. Ashley Sieg is The Guardian's economics correspondent. Is August keeping you busy, Ashley? It is, unfortunately, yes. And Larry Elliott's The Guardian's economics editor. And you're just moments from a sit-down chancellor. Are you going to give him hell, Larry? No, I think Alistair Darling's the best chance we've had since Gladstone, as you well know, Adich. I have utter respect and... Total faith in our, in, our, in, our, in our Chancellor Exchequer. The Second Lord of the Treasury, I think, is doing an absolutely splendid job standing in for Gordon Brown. Well, that relaxed reply might not indicate it, but Larry's in a bit of a hurry. So let's play one of our new stings and get things going. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. It's called respiratory for event. I hear good breath sounds. He's an SBT. We need to shock him. How will they're attached? Try six of a dead card. He saved my brother. Carter. I go, ah, I'm stuck! Charging 200! Carter, get out of your gloves, get out of your gown. Barely stuck. Got the gunners. Pull back, Carter. That's a clip, of course, from the American hospital drama ER. Far cry from our own Holby City, I'm sure you'll agree. Well, you'll all be familiar with the headlines over the past week. Many Americans, and not least their mainstream media, have been dissing our dearly beloved NHS. It's all because President Obama is trying to drive through his pledge to reform healthcare and soften many of the inequities of the American system. Anna Dixon's Director of Policy at the King's Fund, an independent health think tank. She's analysed both the UK and US healthcare systems and told me how she felt about the transatlantic war of words. Well, I think there are myths um, on both sides of the Atlantic about our healthcare systems. And uh, certainly the image I think that most Americans have of the NHS probably dates from the sort of 1980s and 90s, when we did have much longer waiting lists and waiting times than we do now. And, you know, rationing was more of a reality. And there had been chronic underinvestment in the sort of facilities, the buildings and the technology available in the NHS. But obviously, since um, 2000, there's been a huge increase in, in the amount invested in the NHS and waiting times have come down. In terms of, uh, you know, our views of America, I think there are two main sort of caricatures that people have in mind when they think about US healthcare. The first is of people who are uninsured. And we estimates suggest that there's close to 50 million people without insurance at any one time, some point in the year in the US. Uh, And another sort of 16 million who are what we call underinsured, which means they do have insurance, but it doesn't really cover quite a lot of things. So they've have to pay quite a lot out of their own pockets. So I think people sort of see these people who are uninsured, who turn up at the sort of ER, uh, the accident and emergency rooms in uh, US hospitals and are sort of patched up and dispatched and who really don't have access to primary care and uh, ongoing medical treatment. On the other hand, we have the sort of caricature of very high-tech medicine where, you know, all the latest technologies and all the latest drugs are available to people. So, and actually... That is the issue in the US. There are extremes. Those who have comprehensive 
private insurance through a generous employer can get access to some really high-tech medical care, some of the best in the world. But unfortunately, there are people there whose experience of healthcare is very different with very little access. Just take us through the experience of someone who is actually uninsured and they've had a car crash. What's their experience of the healthcare system like in America versus the experience over here in NHS? They would probably get picked up by an ambulance, which would probably be run either by the Red Cross or by a private uh, company. That um, ambulance, they would be checking their wallet to see if they were carrying insurance card. They would transport that person to the near, well, not necessarily the nearest accident emergency, but who was taking trauma patients. Uh, And that would often actually be in some of the major cities. It could well be um, a hospital that's actually part run part funded by the state governments and it will very much depend on that what the status of that hospital is as to whether they you know will treat that person uh, and hold on to them they will be checking to see are they eligible for medicaid are they eligible which is the one for poor people the state funded program are they over 65 in which case again the state funded the government funded program of medicare would pick up the costs but they would be very keen to know who's going to pay the bill If at the end of all of that, they found that this person had no um, eligibility for any of those either publicly funded programmes or indeed um, privately, was privately insured, then they would be pursuing that individual for paying those healthcare bills. If that person wasn't able to uh, pay those bills, which they were then in debt to the um, hospital, Ultimately, they might file for bankruptcy. And actually, it's one of the most common causes of bankruptcy in the US is, is the inability to pay healthcare bills. But, but Anna, that all sounds absolutely horrendous. If you're someone on the wrong end of that, does it surprise you that Obama and before him, the Clintons have run into such trouble in introducing a kind of greater extension of health insurance? I think that there are some very strong um, interests within the US healthcare. And in fact, why we have the healthcare systems that we do today in most countries is a really uh, an accident of history. Um, if you look back to the sort of social health insurance, you know, Bismarck, they're trying to um, suppress some of the uh, worker interests in in Germany at the the sort of late uh, 19th century, he chose an insurance program which actually built on existing insurance funds. They were an established institution and interest group in that country and so that shaped very much how healthcare not only was created at that time but in fact how it um, operates today in Germany and I think you've got to accept that America has got to build on what it has got and that is what Obama is proposing. He's not proposing to introduce a national health service funded by taxation. He is proposing to try and extend coverage for those people who are uninsured and to offer a government regulated and perhaps even tax subsidised system of insurance. But he's not proposing to abolish some of the things that already exist, government insurance for the over 65s, the government insurance for the poor. He's not proposing to abolish these things. They already exist. But we have to recognise that for both Clinton and it's the same for, for Obama, that most of American healthcare is both privately insured and privately delivered. And so there are very, very strong vested interests in that system who fear that in order to extend coverage in this way, he is going to have to put pressure on 
the amount that's paid for healthcare. And at the end of the day, that may well affect the profits of some of these companies. And it will certainly affect the amount that um, doctors make each year. So I think there are some very, you know, not just the pharmaceutical industry, which is the one that often in, is pointed to as being um, a likely block. I think there are many uh, interests, the private insurers, the private hospital chains and the, med- uh, the medical profession who are all set to potentially lose. And finally, let's uh, bring that debate about politicians and healthcare back to Britain. Both Labour and the Conservatives uh, seem to agree that health that, that health spending is one of the areas that shouldn't get squeezed in the next sort of great big public spending squeeze. Um, I can understand the political reasons for that, but does that make economic sense for you for healthcare to remain ring fenced while other departments get the billions squeezed out of them? Well, in the report that the King's Fund jointly um, published recently with the um, IFS, we did an analysis to try and model what would be the impact of various um, scenarios around health funding. And it was clear to us that it wasn't going to be possible to protect, um, to stick with the commitments around um, growth in health funding, uh, even with making quite substantial cuts in other departments without raising taxes or borrowing more, which clearly is not going to be possible. It was just not possible to uh, to stick with those commitments. And, and our view was that we were going to have to enter a period of either zero or extremely low growth in NHS um, funding. The political costs around cuts to education or to defence or overseas development monies, those are very, very difficult political decisions. But from our analysis, it certainly appears that that NHS funding, it will be very difficult to um, to protect it. Our view is that it's, it's, it's a fairly pessimistic outlook for the NHS. Anna Dixon there. Larry Nashier, I just want to quickly pick up on Anna's final point there. Does it make sense for the NHS to be protected when other departments are being squeezed in an inevitable public spending squeeze? I think it probably is unwise to um, to restrict, to, to, to guarantee the spending of one part of, of government spending over any other. I think it, it just sort of ties your hands in future and leads perhaps the people within the NHS to think that their spending will never be cut so they don't have to worry about being efficient or looking for savings or doing their jobs in a better way that, that that bring better outcomes for patients or so on. So no, I don't see why any, there are plenty of other deserving causes looking for public funding all the time. Larry, what do you think? I think it's interesting that health spending grew at double the rate of education spending in the last year. Uh, 8% for health, 4% for education, which once you take inflation into account, is actually very tight uh, settlement for education. And uh, There is a cost, obviously. If we're going to ring-fence health spending, then it means that you can't spend the same pound on other priorities. So some other quite important areas of the economy, and you might might actually think that having a properly skilled, well-educated workforce is just as important, if not more important, than spending ever more money on the health service. I mean, for example, you know, conceptually, if you were to say crime's a problem, is the answer to double the budget for the Ministry of Justice, the answer would probably be not. So it, it, it's questionable, I think, whether it makes sense to actually ladle all this money into health if there is a, an opportunity cost elsewhere in the economy. OK, let's leave that there. And you can keep up to date with this story at guardian.co.uk slash NHS. This is The Business from The Guardian. From healthcare to recovery, economic recovery that is, 
Over the past week, France and Germany, the two main powerhouses of the Eurozone, have emerged from their recessions, returning to growth for the second quarters of 2009. Looking further afield, and Japan's recession seems also to come to an end. We'll come back to the Far East in a moment, but first, let's concentrate on matters closer to the Eurostar. Angelique Christophis is The Guardian's Paris correspondent. I asked her how the public has greeted news of the upturn. Well, I think it feels a bit uneasy in France here. I mean, the government said very tentatively and with a lot of surprise that France was coming out of the red. So we've seen 0.3% growth in the second quarter of this year, which basically technically means this is the end of France's worst recession since World War II. But I think it's much more complex than that. And economists certainly aren't smiling around here. And what about when you go out on the high street or you talk to people in industry? How do they, how do they say they're feeling? Well, it's still a lot of doom and gloom around here. I mean, you have to look at the, the short-term reasons for this growth. And when you start to do that, you realise what shaky ground France is actually on. So to start with, a lot of this growth has to do with the French car industry. They're smiling, but they're not counting their chickens too soon because basically they've had a shot in the arm from a state bailout. And they've also benefited from what we call the cash for clunkers schemes across Europe, which means you trade in your old banger for a shiny new car. Now, this has helped French exports, but these programmes are going to be progressively wound down and as one French economist said you can't buy a new car every six months so this isn't really the solution to all France's ills. So they've had a shot in the arm one of the big things we've noticed during the course of the session is that the popularity of people like Gordon Brown and Alice Darling have take, has taken a real hit how's it affected the the French government? Well, it's interesting. If you have to look at Nicolas Sarkozy's uh, stimulus measures, now one of the reasons for the growth is the idea of consumer spending. Now, that's this, this notion that household disposable income has held up. You have to ask the question of why is that? Now, part of the reason is, is Nicolas Sarkozy, the French president's stimulus initiatives, which were included tax cuts for poorer families and so on. Families in France also have a relatively low level of personal debt. We've had the summer sales, fuel prices and decreasing inflation has helped. So although this disposable income is holding up at the the moment and the government could really smile and say well listen that's down to us there's one big thing looming which is really going to be a problem for Nicolas Sarkozy's popularity which is that unemployment is expected to shoot up in the autumn and if unemployment goes up obviously it's going to have a direct effect on reining in that disposable income and we're going to see France really in trouble. One of the things that people over in Britain have been saying is well, this just shows that the Anglo-Saxon economies have got it wrong, that they that not only can they not deliver growth, they can't deliver, deliver quality, whereas on the continent, they've got it right. Do you get much of a sense of triumphalism over the continent? Do you know, there's absolutely no triumphalism in France at all. It's very, very interesting. You'd have thought this would be the moment of glory for the French model. And we've seen um, articles go, you know, about that in the US. For example, this is a model with a heavy um, state, with a heavy state subsidies, where there's support for people who are unemployed, there's job protection, and so on and so forth. You would think it's going to be a triumphal moment for France. But in, instead of that, France was actually reporting Britain's woes instead of its own triumph, because it knows it's just too early to count its chickens. So there's absolutely no triumphalism because the thing about France is that it took longer for the financial crisis to hit because we have a very strong state sector. Banks are very strongly regulated. The private sector here was already in the doldrums. The economy in France was already not doing too well. So it wasn't hit with a massive sledgehammer in the way that Britain and Ireland were, for example, which also means it's going to take longer for it to come out the other end. So there's no triumphalism here. I think the government was very surprised by this growth and they're just too nervous to start crowing about it. Angelique Chrysophis on the line from Paris there. Ashley, do you share her scepticism about the French recovery? 
I absolutely do. And I don't really accept the term that they've come out of recession because every recession since the war has been many quarters of which it's quite usual to have one of them going up and then you might well go down again. And Angelique there was saying that if unemployment shoots up in the autumn and consumer spending nosedives, then you could well have another negative quarter. So to say they're out of recession, I don't think is accurate. What is interesting about France is that it even preceded Britain into a recession, even though it hadn't had the financial excesses that we had. So I think, you know, Europe is broadly in a similar position to Britain because the effects of the credit crunch are rippling through the French and German banking systems, actually. And um, they also are struggling with a strong euro, which is going to crimp their exports relative to those from Britain. So, so no, I think, I mean, it's encouraging, obviously, that the initial provisional figure shows growth rather than contraction but are we out of the woods no I wouldn't say we are at all and just look at Germany for a second because one of the things that people were talking about during the course of this recession was um, that what needs to change is countries like Germany and China need to consume more and countries like Britain and America need to save more but Germany's taken a pretty sort of strident uh, position against that and said well actually we're going to export our way into recovery Yes, it's great, isn't it? The old free rider problem that the Germans represent and have done for very many years. They say they'll export their way out of out of recession. Well, somebody's got to buy that stuff and they're depending yet again on the Americans to do that for them instead of playing their own part and buying their own stuff or buying other countries' it's stuff. In, it's so. interesting, isn't it, that the the increase in German GDP is almost entirely the result of imports crashing rather than anything else. It's, the, it's, the, it's what we call net export effect, which is the exports have held up rather better than imports. So instead of actually importing more to actually um, get consumer spending growing in the way you were just talking about, Aditya, the Germans are doing exactly the opposite. Imports have absolutely collapsed, and that's actually given them a net boost to their economy. Whether, whether that's a particularly desirable thing for the global economy as a whole, of course, is, is very, very much in doubt. I mean, the other interesting thing about this, of course, is that when we talk about countries going into recession, it takes two quarters of, a, of contraction for an economy to be deemed to be in recession, but apparently only one quarter of expansion for it deemed to be out of recession. So I'd say that we need to have a look over two, possibly even three quarters to see whether economies are really recovering from this, from this, from this recession or not. So on now to Japan. The world's second largest economy has come out of its worst recession since the Second World War. Recovery is embryonic, to say the least. GDP is up by just 0.9% from the previous quarter. But hey, who are we to criticise? Now, Japan, of course, is famous in economic circles for having endured a lost decade in the 1990s. We'll discuss that in more detail with Larry Nash in a sec. But first, let's hear from Justin McCurry, our man in Tokyo. I asked him whether the recovery was perhaps something of a false dawn. I wouldn't say it's a false dawn. Um, I mean, the, the figures are there to tell quite an encouraging story about Japan's GDP, certainly can only be optimistic after the second biggest economy in the world has started to grow again after five straight courses of contraction. Um, There are certainly mixed messages coming through. On the one hand, uh, Japan's clearly benefited from a rise in demand from some of its major trading partners, uh, notably China, which seems to be feeling the uh, effects of its own huge stimulus package and from other economies in East Asia, which have all posted some quite encouraging results in the last uh, last week or two. Japan also seems to be benefiting from its own stimulus package. It was uh, a 25 trillion yen series of stimulus spending uh, announced by Taro Aso, the prime minister, over the last few months. Uh, those included a one, one-off handout to Japanese families and, in fact, uh, foreign residents of Japan as well, and subsidies on uh, fuel-efficient cars 
and green electrical household appliances, that sort of thing. That seems to have created a at least a boost uh, in consumption here in Japan uh, to go alongside the uh, the rise in demand in places like China. So there's certainly room for optimism, but. When I mention mixed messages, I mean, there are certain downside risks to the Japanese economy that will take some time to, to disappear um, or at least even start to dissipate. And most serious uh, among those is private consumption. Now, that accounts for about 55% of Japanese economic activity. Now, although private consumption rose in the, the three months up to June by just 0.8%, and that in itself is better than it has been in the recent past it still shows that japanese families um, i mean they're not out dancing in the streets now that we've had this relatively upbeat economic news they're still very worried about things like falling wages um, the size of their winter and summer bonuses um, and most of all about the job situation i mean the unemployment in japan is at 5.4 percent at the moment that's about just under three and a half million people now that's 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 high for Japanese standards. It could rise later this year to a record uh, 5.5%. And some of the more pessimistic uh, economists are saying that by next year, it could be as high as 58 perhaps even 6%. So as long as ordinary Japanese households are worried about their, their household finances, um, salarymen are worried about their jobs, temporary workers, and there are a lot more temporary workers in Japan now than there were during the, the lost decade of the 1990s, as long as they're concerned about their job prospects, whether they'll have a job by this time next week, then I think we have to sort of take the fairly good GDP data with a pinch of salt. Justin McCurry from Tokyo there. Larry, let's come to you first. You and I were at a talk by a Nobel Prize winning economist, Paul Krugman, a few months ago, because we're such fun-loving guys. Um, And he was saying there that here in Britain, we'll look back on Japan's lost decade as a bit of a walk in the park. Do you think he was overstating things? Uh, Well, he was obviously doing a three-part lecture series, and he's well known as a bit of a controversialist. I mean, I'd I'd hope he was wrong, because the Japanese experience of the last... 15, 20 years has not been pretty. Um, And one of the reasons I'm somewhat sceptical about these new Japanese GDP figures is that we've been here very many times in the past. I mean, Japan's come in and out of recession at least three times, to my knowledge, perhaps even more times than that since the the big downturn started. Um, I mean, it's been an economy which has been dogged by deflation and dogged by periodic recession. And I think, you know, Justin, what Justin didn't say there was that Japan's decline in GDP over the last 15 months has been colossal. I mean, it's much, even now, it's actually seen a much bigger fall in GDP than we have had here, even though we're not, out of, not, not, not growing yet. And it's, it really is the case that the big exporting countries really felt the hammer blows of the global downturn in Q4 and Q1 of this year. So Germany and Japan saw their trade completely decimated by the downturn and have now seen a little bit of a boost in Q2. That, that to me, obviously welcome, but it doesn't mean by any means that these economies are out of the woods. It just means that maybe trading conditions have normalised. <clears throat> in terms of Britain, we obviously have completely different uh, economic problems from Japan. Japan retained a very strong industrial base throughout its downturn. It retained uh, a, a consumer sector which wasn't heavily indebted. So um, if we are going to have a, a lost decade or two of growth it won't be for the same reasons that japan has had it 
And Natalie, let's come to you, because one of the things that the last decade seems to have taught the Japanese leadership is when a big recession comes, you do have to act. And Taro Aso, who Justin McCrory was talking about, the Prime Minister of Japan, he was actually giving an interview to the FT and Wall Street Journal saying, look, if we're going to come through this recession, we all need to act together to intervene together. And he launched a big stimulus package, which is much, much bigger than, than, than the one Alistair Darling unveiled. Is there any sign that any of that's worked? Well, it could be that these recoveries in in France, Germany uh, and Japan that we've seen are just a result of a temporary stimulus that then fades and falls away. The question is, you know, does the stimulus lead to a self-sustaining recovery where consumer spending, exports and so forth pick up? That remains to be seen. I'm not convinced. I'm certainly not convinced by the Japan recovery story. They've fallen so far that just the act of not falling would be enough to make them look as if they were going up again, if you see what I mean. Uh, the stocking and destocking cycles that you get in recessions. If the destocking cycle in, in an industry the size of Japan's comes to an end, it will make GDP look as if it was growing. But it doesn't mean you've regained any of the lost GDP that you've had in the past year. So... I'm in general, in general, not convinced by the whole Japanese story in general and by this recovery in particular. And since I've got two economists in the studio, I'm going to put to you a, a, an argument that's been made by many people in the stock markets, which is the world, the worst is all behind us. The world is slowly recovering. This is what accounts for a big rally we've seen in stock markets. And from here on, things can only get better. In fact, don't worry about deflation. Worry about inflation coming to down track in a year, two, two years' time start with you Ashley what do you make of it um, the argument that we should worry about inflation rather than deflation I think is total nonsense the reason that we've had all this stimulus is exactly to avoid deflation you do stimulus and you cut interest rates and you do quantitative easing precisely to get inflation because you know how to deal with inflation but what about the general things just getting better story if barring another accident in the banking sector, which is still possible on the back of all these de rising defaults in commercial property and so forth, then in theory we should start to get better. Will we get better quickly? I doubt it very much. Larry? I think inflation is a concern some years out. I'm worried about it in two or three years' time, but I'm more worried about deflation in the short term. I'm not convinced by the recovery story for a number of reasons. One is that stock markets seem to be going up because corporate earnings are going up. And the, one, the reason corporate earnings are going up is not because sales are going up, but because companies are cutting staff very aggressively and cutting wages. That's going to have a big impact on aggregate demand. The second reason I'm worried is that people will start to believe this recovery story. If they start to believe it strongly enough, then you're going to see big increases in commodity prices. That's going to fan this problem of inflation, this fear of inflation that you were talking about. If central banks, policymakers respond to that by either removing the stimulus too early or, in, or in, indeed tightening policy, that will actually start to have an impact on economies just as their rally is, is coming to an end because of the sort of just the stage of the cycle. I mean, I think because because the stimulus packages are short-lived, time-constrained, there will be a point at which that effect will start to fade away. And if that comes at a time when policymakers start making mistakes by tightening policy too soon, we could then have the second leg of the the, the, the downturn, which I I would imagine was going to happen probably in early two thousand and ten. And on that cheery note, it's time to say thank you to the panel, Ashley Segan, Larry Elliott. There's more comment and analysis on all the things we've been discussing on The Guardian's business website. And if you want to have your say on what you've heard, leave a comment on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. Our producer's Ben Green. I'm Edith Chakraborty. And that was the business. <laughs> <laughs>